0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. Good morning, everyone. I'm going to continue on in our study of Luke and looking at Luke chapter 21, uh, what is known as the Olivet Discourse. It's the most extensive teaching that Jesus gives us in the end times, as we call it, or the events that are going to unfold at the end of history. Okay. Um, now, normally, we would read through the entire Scripture passage. Luke 21, verses uh, 20 to 36 is our text for this morning, as part of a Scripture reading before I go into the sermon. But what I've decided to do is just to sort of look at the different verses in that text, scattered throughout the sermon itself. And so we're not going to start with the scripture reading this morning, okay? So let's bow in a word of prayer as we turn to this passage. Um, Lord, uh, we ask you for your presence here this morning um, through this teaching of your word. Let that ministry of the Holy Spirit really illuminate this difficult text and help us to um, understand what it is that you're asking of us. And why it is that you warn us of the things that are coming in our future and the response that you're calling out from us so that we would be obedient to your will and what your desire is for us. Lord, I pray that our whole life would be framed by that fundamental belief that you are coming again and that there is a whole different destiny that awaits us uh, who are in Christ Jesus. And out of that faith, out of that trust, we would live and walk and all the decisions that we make in our life and everything that we are living for would flow out of that fundamental conviction of of the eternal destiny that awaits us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We looked last week from verses 5 to 19 of Luke 21. And so I'm going to just jump right in at verse 20 where we left off. And it says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies then know that its desolation has come near. As I mentioned in the first sermon, uh, almost all the events that Jesus predicts in Luke 21 came true about 35 years later after he spoke them in 70 AD when the Romans sacked Jerusalem. Uh, Once they breached the walls, they came and they burned the city to the ground. They tore down the temple completely, just as Jesus had predicted. It goes on in verses 21 to 24. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth, And wrath against his people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. It's interesting. Jesus gives specific instruction to his disciples. When you see the signs of everything that I warned you about, and when you see the invading armies begin to surround the city of Jerusalem, He tells his followers, flee to the surrounding countryside. Get out of the city. Now that command is interesting because that's in exact opposition to traditional wisdom in those days which meant that when the invading armies enter your land, the natural instinct for the inhabitants of that land was to congregate and swarm into the cities because that was the part of the country that was fortified usually with these enormous walls that would protect you from the invading armies. But what Jesus says is, when the armies come, don't follow your instinct and run into the city. He says, get out of the city, because the last place you're going to want to be is in Jerusalem, when the invading armies come. Now, what's interesting is some New Testament scholars believe that this is exactly how many early Christians were actually saved was by obeying this command of Jesus to get out of the city when they saw the Romans approaching. And out of that, their lives were spared. Because we know that from both the Jewish and Roman historians that the fate of those who stayed in the city was horrible. They fled into the city thinking it was going to provide safety and it became their graveyard during the years that it took it lasted this siege of Jerusalem by the Romans lasted years and they slowly starved the people to death the eyewitness accounts say that the women were so malnourished that their breasts no longer provided milk for the babies so that the babies were left outside to die In fact, there are reports of cannibalism happening because the starvation was so unbearable. So that once the Romans finally breached the walls of Jerusalem, the people were so weak that they could barely mount a resistance. And the Roman soldiers ran through the streets of Jerusalem, killing indiscriminately every man, woman, and child that they could find. And the slaughter was so horrendous that basically the eyewitness accounts say there was barely a person alive left in the city. Every, they didn't spare anybody, whether you were elderly, infirmed, whether you were a child. They killed everyone. By all accounts, there was something between 500,000 to a million Jews that were killed once the walls were breached by these Romans. When you study this Olivet Discourse in Luke 21 carefully, though, it becomes pretty clear that Jesus is not limiting his prophecy to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, but he's talking about much bigger events at a global scale that are going to mark the end of history. In this sense, the fulfillment of biblical prophecies is sort of like a ripple of water that flows when a drop hits. There are these repeated cycles of fulfillment. Often, with each cycle comes an increasing intensity and scope to that fulfillment. And so in one sense, the prophecies that Jesus gave in Luke 21 were fulfilled 35 years later when Jerusalem fell in 70 A.D. But... As we've come to understand biblical prophecy more clearly, the suggestion is that it doesn't end there. There are these cyclical fulfillments, these ripple effect of these prophecies so that there will be repeated fulfillments of these prophecies all looking ahead to an ultimate fulfillment that is going to happen at the end of history, which is often the focus of the book of Revelation and what's going to unfold at the very end. In verse 20, Jesus makes reference to this coming of a desolation. Now, in Matthew and Mark's Gospels, it describes this desolation a little more fully as the abomination that causes desolation. Mark chapter 13, verse 14 puts it like this. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, this is in a reference to a prophecy made several times by the Old Testament prophet Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, it says, He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. This he is talking about this evil ruler that is going to rise up in the last days. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, meaning he's going to stop the Israelite religious uh, system. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now, an abomination refers to something that is absolutely repulsive or abhorrent, disgusting to God. It offends His holiness. And the prophet refers to an event here where some evil ruler will rise up and he will enter the temple grounds in Jerusalem and he's going to desecrate it by setting up what most scholars believe to be some type of an evil idolatry or some false religion there on the side of the temple that is going to be an utter offense against God. And is going to lead many people astray. In Luke chapter 21, verse 8, Jesus warned that there are going to be many false messiahs who are going to emerge after he leaves. And sure enough, history is filled with them. Even if you just look at the decades that followed after Jesus ascended to heaven, there were numerous Jewish leaders who rose up to claim that they were the Messiah. But here was the problem, was none of them could back up their claims with any power. And so as soon as they gathered a following of people that actually believed their hype, and once they started a movement, the Romans would come in and would kill them all. The worst was Simon Barcoba who led led probably the biggest revolt, and yet 500,000 of his followers were slaughtered by the Romans. In the 5th century, there was another Messiah, a false Messiah that rose in the island of Crete and began to stir up these messianic expectations. And he said, I am the Messiah, and this was his claim. He said, when I command it, the seas of the Mediterranean waters are going to part, and you're going to be able to walk right to Jerusalem on dry ground. And people believed him and they entered the water. Except he couldn't part the Mediterranean Sea and a lot of his followers drowned. So there has been this history of repeated false messiahs, just as Jesus said, who are going to claim that they are me, he says. But he says, don't go after them. And the truth is, none of them could back up their claims with any real power. But this is what the Bible says. At the very end, as we approach the end of history, there's going to be a final false messiah that's going to emerge on the scene. And this guy is going to demonstrate power, unlike these other messiahs. And he's going to fool a lot of people because of the power that he wields. He's going to be different than all the others. And it's going to be so convincing that he's going to lead the world astray. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 to 10 says, The coming of the lawless one, speaking of the Antichrist, will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth, and so be saved. As this verse points out, this Antichrist figure will perform all kinds of counterfeit miracles that are going to confuse the world. And people are going to look at him, be fooled by it, and start following him. The book of Revelation, it refers to the Antichrist as the beast. And it says in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1 to 4, And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads. Now you got to understand, this is speaking figuratively, Okay? with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? In Revelation, we're told that of all the miracles that are performed, the most powerful one that's going to deceive the most people is that it's going to appear as if this Antichrist receives a fatal wound. He should have died. But somehow, he's going to recover from it. He's going to be healed. It's interesting, right? It mimics Jesus' own death and resurrection, except it's a counterfeit. And out of that miracle, many people, it says, are going to follow him. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3 to 4 says, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. This is very similar language to the abomination that causes desolation. And so a lot of scholars believe that that's how you put the two prophecies together, is that somehow the rising of this antichrist figure, he is going to go to Jerusalem to the temple and he's going to establish his own religion, worshiping himself at the center, which is going to be a desecration of God's holy site, And this is going to lead so many people astray. Jesus continues in verse 25 to 27 of Luke 21. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars. And on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the power of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. I think this part of the prophecy is the one that we're most disconnected from because the truth is as, as modern people living in the 21st century, we almost never look up to the sky, right? You do know, go, oh, it's a full moon tonight. You, know? like, you don't even know what the moon cycle is, right? Unless you're into astrology or something, which I hope you're not, you know? Um, but um, that's the truth is this, this idea of being terrified because of signs of the sun and the moon and the stars Sounds like the stuff of ancient people, you know, uneducated ancient people who were superstitious like that and believed that when the stars are in certain alignment, you, you get really frightened. You know, and they're like, well, you know, that's silly. I mean, who cares about that stuff? But as I was preparing the sermon, um, I was reminded of October 2005 when I was living in Kenya. It was our first year there, in fact. And we experienced a solar eclipse, okay? Now, I still remember being in third grade, and we had a solar eclipse. And we made those little shoe boxes where you could look at it indirectly, and you saw the little, you know, the moon going in front. And I, and I was like, oh, that was kind of fun and interesting. And I thought like, oh, no big deal. Because I had seen a couple of them growing up. But what I didn't realize was that those were all partial solar eclipses. That eclipse in Kenya in 2005 was a total solar eclipse. And I got to tell you, it scared the daylights out of me, okay? (laughs) I I am a man of science, okay? (laughs) And I knew it was coming because it was in the news reports that Kenya is going to see a total eclipse. And it was around 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and I was just outside in a bright, sunny day, And it was the most freakish thing I had ever seen because it wasn't like the darkness of a setting or rising sun, you know, where it's orange and red and you see the horizontal beams of light. It wasn't like that because the sun was hanging at the highest point in midday and then suddenly it just went black. And I don't know how to describe the sensation. You felt like you were indoors. It literally felt like someone took the dimmer switch of the universe and just turned it down like this. And it was dark, and it was the kind of thing where you're almost like rubbing your eyes going, am I seeing clearly here? It was weird. It was freakish. And then, I don't know how to describe it, like when you looked at the shadows cast by the sun going through the leaves in the trees, every single shadow was a crescent. Every shadow everywhere was a crescent. It was weird, you know? Never seen anything like that in my life. Uh, what was so disturbing to me about it is that there's just some things that you expect to be constant in your life, right? Like the sun. <laughs> it shouldn't change on you. And when it suddenly goes dark, it's a very disturbing feeling, It's very unsettling. Uh, it's, it's very similar to, I think, how Californians talk about going through your first earthquake. They say you're never the same after that when you actually feel the ground under your feet shaking because the ground is not supposed to move, right? And yet when you actually feel the walls swaying back and forth, it it almost undoes the very sense of stability in your life. Jesus uses the word perplexity, and I think he captures the feeling well. He says that in these last days, there's going to be cosmic phenomena, that's going to freak people out, and they're going to say, what's happening here, you know? What is going on with the world? What in the world is happening here? And it's going to send terror into the hearts of people. Remember, it's after that, after all of this, that Jesus says, and when this stuff happens, look to the sky, because you know that the Son of Man is coming. Um, remember that passage that we first looked at in Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27? It says he will confirm a covenant, meaning the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of that seven, now what scholars believe is that Daniel is referring to a period of seven years, the reign of the Antichrist. And what Daniel seems to be saying possibly is that in the middle of those seven years, after three and a half years, as he is rising to power, that is when he's going to set up this abomination that causes desolation in the temple grounds in Jerusalem, which is basically going to set the stage for the Great Tribulation. Okay? Now, what's interesting is that what Jesus says is, As this stuff is unfolding and you see the desolation coming, he says that is when the Son of Man is going to appear. Now it's out of this understanding that some interpret this to mean that actually before the worst parts of the Great Tribulation come underway, that Jesus is going to come back and there's going to be a rapture where believers are taken to heaven. And he is going to spare believers from the worst of the tribulation uh, because the second half of those seven years is going to be the really horrendous part of the tribulation. Now, do I believe that? Um, I don't know. <laughs> it could be, but there are counterarguments for it. Let me say this. To me, One of the strongest arguments for why Christians will be raptured before the Great Tribulation, or at least before the worst of the Great Tribulation, is the fact that the Bible often associates the Great Tribulation with judgment, with judgment coming on the world for rejecting Jesus. Speaking of the end times in verse 22, it says, For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. This is judgment coming on the world. And if that is the case, then it could make sense why God would spare Christians from having to go through that suffering because of his grace toward them, because of their faith. Okay? So it's confusing, but it's possible that that's what Scripture is teaching. I think the bottom line is simply this. Let's pray that Jesus will spare us from the tribulation, <laughs> but be ready in case he doesn't. Amen? Okay? <laughs> I, I think that's the best attitude. Is, Lord, let it come. Let the rapture come before this great tribulation. But, like, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even if you don't deliver, we will not worship other gods. Verse 28 continues and it says, Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. In other words, while everyone else in the world is responding in fear, these signs ought to be an encouragement to Christians because Jesus is going to return soon. And he illustrates this with a brief parable in verse 29 to 32. And he told them a parable, Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. In other words, what he's basically saying is, listen, when you see these signs unfolding, know that the end is very near. And then he says this, this last phrase, though, is probably the most controversial, the most confusing, when he says this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. What did Jesus mean by this? Now, some have argued that he was referring to the fact that everyone who was alive at the time of hearing would be alive when Jerusalem fell in 70 AD. And the truth is probably there were many people who heard the Olivet Discourse and saw the fall of Jerusalem. The problem, though, is that not everything in Luke 21 was fulfilled, was it? So it's hard to argue that that generation that heard Jesus' words with their own ears saw all the prophecies, fulfilled, even if they saw the fall of Jerusalem. Others think that what this means is when it talks about the budding of the leaves and the fig tree blooming, that they argue that what that meant is that Israel became a nation in 1948. And that's something that maybe a lot of you don't know was that for almost 2,000 years, Israel was not a nation. But by really, arguably, a miracle of God, after 2,000 years of not being a people, God, became, uh, God made them to become a nation again in 1948. And so what they say is one generation from that time would be the return of Jesus. The problem is that typically a generation is viewed as about 40 years. And if you add 40 years to 1948, that takes us to about 1988. 1988. And the truth was, in the 80s, there were a whole bunch of these doomsday cults that emerged because of this math. And they said Jesus was going to come back in the 1980s. The problem is he didn't. And we're now in 2016. We're about 68 years out from the birth of Israel as a nation. The other problem with that perspective, this argument is, it doesn't really link Israel as a birth of a nation with this parable of the fig tree. So I think it's a stretch. I think the best way to understand what Jesus meant when he said this generation will see all of this is simply to say the generation that sees these early signs in the final days of all of this stuff happening is also the generation that's going to see the return of Jesus. All of these events... He's describing is going to happen within a lifetime. It's not going to be stretched out year after year after thousands of years. But once the final end starts moving in motion, it's going to happen really quickly so that that generation will see the return of Christ. Now, I was really struggling with the preparation of this material because. I felt the burden as your pastor to try to unpack as much of the chronology and timeline issues and what these prophecies actually mean because I think there's a lot of kooky teaching out there and a lot of stuff that worries me that I don't really feel is rooted in biblical teaching, real biblical faithfulness. And yet at the same time, the last thing I wanted to do in this sermon is to turn this into like... Uh, a biblical timeline sermon, you know, where I tell you how everything is going to unfold because I think that's precisely the problem with so many of these groups that arise, like these doomsday cults, is that it's so easy to get sucked into figuring out dates and timelines for all of these events, and I don't think that that is the point of these prophecies. God didn't give us these prophecies so that we could see the Bible as one big puzzle book that we're trying to unsolve as a mystery novel and try to figure out when everything is going to happen. He does say be vigilant and be alert to the signs that are going to happen. But the whole point of it is more about the preparation of our hearts for his return. He's just saying be ready. Let every generation of the church be ready and realize you could be the last generation. Verses 34 to 36, it says, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Do you understand what Jesus is saying in these last words of the Olivet Discourse? The call to be ready is not a call of preparation for suffering. It is a call to be ready to face God himself. That is Jesus' warning, ultimately. In other words, what Jesus is saying is the one you should be fearing is not the coming Antichrist, as terrible as his reign is going to be. But it ought to be God, because he is the one that is going to determine your eternal destiny. He is the one that will be your judge, the one that you will have to stand before one day. Luke chapter 12, verse 4 to 5 says this, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, you know what? Some people mistakenly think that Jesus is talking about Satan. But nowhere in the Bible does it say that Satan can cast someone to hell. He is not. He is talking about God. You see, right before these verses, in verses 1 to 4 of Luke 12, Jesus talks about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees who carefully manage their image to look good in front of the eyes of people. And what Jesus is saying is these fools are playing to the wrong audience. Because God alone is our judge. You can fool others, but God alone knows the state of your hearts. And his judgment is the only one that is going to matter when everything is said and done. And history comes to an end. I really debated about putting this quote that I'm going to share with you right now in this sermon. Uh, But I'm going to share it with you. And then we'll try to unpack it a little, okay? Brian Jones says this. Apocalyptic urgency is not about saving your friend from hell. It is about saving your friend from God. Hell isn't your lost friend's biggest problem. God is. Hell is simply the end result of God's justified wrath. It's the final permanent expression of his anger toward those who have purposely chosen to reject his lordship over their lives Hebrews 10 verse 31 says it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God that has to be the biggest understatement in all of scripture this is not a statement that is easy to accept or to understand but I think it's one that we need to wrestle with because it's true to say that God is holy is to say that he cannot tolerate sin. And I think when we hear stuff like this, you know, we, we tend to package the gospel in much more palatable ways in our day, right? We're, we're more refined, we're more modern, and we feel that we've sort of filtered out this more kind of ancient aspects, these more barbaric aspects of our faith so that it isn't so abrasive to seekers, Right? And I think it's easy when we read stuff like this to feel like, well, I can't accept a God like that. That's not the kind of God that I want to worship. Let me say this. If we had the luxury to pick and choose whatever attributes that we want in the God we worship, then he becomes nothing more than a figment of our imagination, a creation of our mind. But if God is real and he has revealed himself through the Bible, then we better struggle with what it has to say about his holiness and his judgment rather than dismissing it because it makes us feel uncomfortable. The truth is this, that whenever God tells the world, I am love, we readily accept that. Amen, thank you. I'm so glad. God is love. But whenever God has revealed, I am holy, people have struggled with that, even in the pages of Scripture. People have wrestled with it. King David, Moses, Abraham, they all struggled with this idea that God was holy. But we cannot understand the message of grace. The cross has no meaning if we don't first understand That God is holy and that's the difficult truth that we have to embrace if we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ is that the message of the end times is a message that God's judgment is coming on a world that has rejected him and that judgment is going to be terrifying but at the same time the gospel is a message of God's grace Offered to us through Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 to 21 says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is Paul's plea as an ambassador of Christ. Be reconciled with God while you have this opportunity, while there is grace available and before judgment comes on this world. Because the entire message of the Olivet Discourse is to be ready to stand before the Son of God and face judgment. And the only way that we can stand on that day of judgment is if we are covered by his blood and we have his righteousness as our own. We are living in a final season of grace in the history of this world. Every day that God delays the coming judgment is a day of mercy given to us that we might repent and turn from our sins and find salvation in Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 to 7 says this, and I'm going to close with this. First of all, you must understand that in the last day, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. I'll be honest with you. To preach the Olivet Discourse and say the things I'm saying today, <laughs> um, I don't know how to say it. It, it, it can make us look like we, we follow a barbaric God. And it just feels so out of tune and out of touch with the 21st century. You know, if, if, if we have a God that can help our marriages be better, or help us to raise our children in a better moral system that will turn them into good adults. I mean, we're all for that kind of religion. But when it comes to stuff like this, I mean, this is the kind of barbaric stuff that we, in our modern sensibility, think we should have abandoned centuries ago. And, and there is an offense to this that's hard to get away from. But that's not just a 21st century problem. As you can see, even from the very first century, this was the exact reason why people made fun of Christians. Said, so I can't believe you believe in that silly stuff about the apocalypse and the coming judgment. And what Peter says is that's exactly what they said in the days of Noah. When they watched this old man building this giant ship, and they said, what are you doing, Noah? And then the floods came. And the judgment came. And this is a a step of faith for us to say, yeah, when I look at the world, it looks like tomorrow is going to be just like it was today. And it it feels like life is just going to go on indefinitely. And as it says in the end of this Olivet Discourse, it's going to be so easy to get sucked into just the everyday living of life, drunkenness and dissipation and the worries of life so that the idea of Christ's return doesn't even factor in your life. But Jesus says, those who are my true disciples, who really follow me, will live their life differently. And just like the Christians that were ready to flee Jerusalem when the Romans came, you will be ready for that day when the Son of Man returns. Let's pray.